If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. It's 1660 and two men are on the run, wanted for killing a king. The pursuit of the regicides has been described as the greatest manhunt of the 17th century, and it's the subject of best-selling author Robert Harris's new book, Act of Oblivion. As he told Rhiannon Davis, the book follows two of those responsible for killing King Charles I, Colonels Edward Wally and William Gough, as they desperately try and evade the executioner's blade themselves. So, Robert, what drew you to writing about the hunt for the regicides, the men responsible for the death of Charles I? Well, it was just pure chance. I happened to see a, a, a tweet that, we, that referred to the greatest manhunt of the 17th century, and the conjunction of manhunt and 17th century just intrigued me. So I pursued that, and it would discover they were referring to the hunt for the people who'd been involved in the murder of Charles or the execution of Charles I. And I started reading about it. And the more I read, the more intrigued I became, because it seemed to me that um, here was a, 
an extraordinary manhunt, but it lacked a manhunter. It, it, someone cl- must have closed the ports and drawn up the list, read the documents, amassed the case, interrogated people, can you know work with the lawyers to prosecute them. And I tried to think who that might be, and I thought, well, it was most likely to be someone to do with the Privy Council, who worked perhaps for Edward Hyde, the Lord Chancellor. Uh, there was a, probably a subcommittee of the Privy Council, the a kind of regicide committee, it would be logical that he'd be the secretary of that. And so I began to create this character, and, and that was really the, st- the start of And what kind of sources were available to you for studying this period? Well, uh, at the broadest, uh, most popular level, there are a couple of good, very good um, uh, histories of the hunt for the regicides, which both came out about 10 years or so ago. Then I went from that to obviously much more technical uh, books, highly scholarly books about the machinery of government of Stuart and uh, Cromwellian England, how the whole thing fitted together. That was vital for me. I always like to know where my characters work. And in this case, it would have been the Palace of Whitehall, uh, the Privy Council officers, where they might have lived. Uh, You know, that sort of detail I I can build up. And then I decided, having invented this character, Richard Naylor, the Manhunter, who would he be after particularly? And there was two figures stood out completely, uh, the two colonels who fled to New England, because, first of all, they were father-in-law and son-in-law, which was intriguing in itself. They were yoked together, really. Um, that that suggested an interesting interpersonal relations uh, and also the opportunity to write about New England uh, in the 17th century and to have them chased across it. So next I moved on to reading all I could um, about New England at that time. So when you were writing about them in New England, how close did you stay to the historic record? Very close indeed. Wherever the historical record shows that they went, I, I send them, whoever they hid with, I have them hide there. I followed all the known facts. Uh, there are some letters which exist between Goff, the younger of the two, the son-in-law and his wife in England, and supporters of friends in England. Uh, I used those, and um, I stuck as much as I could to the facts. But, of course, there are huge gaps in the historical record, years we don't know what they were doing. And it was into that that I was able then to insert invention. And, of course, we don't know really what they were like. We know we have a few glimpses. The, the state papers of John Thurlow, um, Cromwell's secretary, are very useful because both men were major generals, you know, part of the administration of the country for a year, uh, and they wrote often to Thurlow. And one built up a picture of them, uh, the elder man, Cromwell's cousin, Ned Wally or Whaley, was um, at 60 at the time my book opens. Uh, he seems to have been a moderate. He was uh, regarded with some suspicion by the levellers because of his fancy clothes. And he opposed a punitive expedition to Ireland. And he um, didn't mind horse racing taking place when he was a major general and said to Cromwell, I know that you wouldn't mind that either. So he had an informal relationship with his cousin, with whom he was obviously very close, and he was a a moderate. Uh, We know more, in a way, about William Goff because he spoke often in the army debates, uh, and we know that he was a radical, a mystic, 
uh, and that he, he he said he had visions from God about the need to um, have nothing to do with the king, and he was um, certainly very close to being a fifth monarchist, if not actually one, who believed that in 1666 Christ would return to earth. So I had these, I had the character, and the two characters, and that enabled me to to, to build a drama. And did you find any new historical information during the course of your research? I did a bit. I mean, nothing that I, nothing huge. But I, this, the DNB and various other sources, they nobody seems to can, to agree on how old William Goff was. Well, I discovered his um, baptismal record, and also discovered that he was actually born in Wales. So. Uh, that I think is new, and also uh, with regard to Edward Wally, there was a an unpublished thesis uh, submitted, uh, MA film submitted to Southampton University in 1973 by a man called Jagger, which is referred to occasionally in sources. And I thought, well, I must find this because it, it's, it's about uh, Whaley and his family. And I scoured the internet, couldn't find anything. Eventually, turned to the phone book. It was his name was Jagger, and it was spelt J A G G A R rather than the Mick Jagger, a different Jagger, an unusual surname. I found a Jagger in uh, Oxford, rang the number, and said, "Is this the home of the author of the study of the Wally family?" And the uh, the woman said. Yes, uh, I'm afraid he's dead, but I'm his widow. And she was very useful. She let me have, very kind, she let me have this um, unpublished thesis, dissertation. And he, uh, Mr. Jagger, was one of the first people, or the only person, who really found out that Wallace White was married to someone called Catherine Middleton, bizarrely enough. But I discovered, because of the name, obscure name of an uncle mentioned in one of the letters, that he'd actually got the wrong Catherine Middleton. There was another one. And I think for the first time I have cleared up the mystery of Wallace's wife's family. And she was descended from a, a good Puritan family and her grandfather had been Lord Mayor of London. So they were quite, um, you know, um, well to do. So I can't claim I've made huge historical breakthroughs, but in terms of these two, I think I have pushed the boundary back a bit. Definitely. So in terms of historical context then, what happened to the regicides during the Restoration? The title of my novel, Act of Oblivion, uh, is obviously drawn from the Parliamentary Act that was agreed between the incoming royalist regime, particularly with Sir Edward Hyde, who became Lord Clarendon, and General Monk, later the Duke of Albemarle. It was agreed there would be a general amnesty, that Parliament would acknowledge the King's return, and in return they would not prosecute people who'd fought against the crown. And this was very successful to the degree that no member of the Cromwell family, uh, neither Richard Cromwell, who succeeded as his father's protector, nor Henry Cromwell, a more formidable figure who'd been commander-in-chief in Ireland, neither both, they both were left unmolested because they hadn't had anything to do with the murder of or execution of Charles I. But anyone who had had anything to do with that execution was required to, a list of names was, um, of more than 100 names was um, drawn up and you were supposed to uh, turn yourself in. Some of them did for the king's mercy. Those who didn't were prescribed and hunted down. There were about um, 
just over 30 of the 59 signatories of the death warrant still left alive, and more of the judges, obviously. Those who uh, surrendered in the hope of mercy were to be disappointed, because with only the most limited exceptions, the best they could hope for was life imprisonment. For those who ran away or refused to um, admit their guilt, the penalty was being hanged, drawn and quartered. And how willing had all of the regicides been to actually sign the death warrant? Well, I think most of them signed pretty willingly, and some of them obviously afterwards, like Colonel Inglesby, pretended that uh, Cromwell had forced them. As he said that he'd seized his hand and guided it across the paper, signing the death warrant. Actually, when the death warrant was found, against all odds, it, it had been saved, a scene I put in the book. You could see that he signed perfectly happily. There's no sign of any forced signing. But some certainly didn't want to sign, and one gets this impression that Cromwell sat in the painted chamber with the death warrant wait you know everyone was invited to drop by and sign it and there weren't enough signatures and in the end he went down to the lobby of the house of commons and said uh, i will have their hands and (laughs) went in and some of them were were frog marched out they'd been they had been judges at the trial but were reluctant to mps were reluctant to sign the death warrant but um, he certainly strong-armed quite a few of them by moral pressure rather than, than physical force. And you mentioned that Wally and Goff flee to the New World. Why is it they pick America to escape to? To a large degree, uh, New England was founded by Puritans, or at least people who fled what they saw as religious persecution by uh, Charles I. Therefore, it's very sympathetic territory. In fact, Colonel Wally's brother-in-law, Hook, William Hook had been um, a minister over there. His sister had lived there as well. So they had a they had a kind of connection with it. And that's so he persuaded, I would imagine, his son-in-law to join him. Uh, and so the two of them took ship to New England in the hope that it was uh, a safe haven. And I, I'm sure in the belief that it wouldn't be long before they could get back to England again, that the royalist uh, regime would not last very long and that uh, God because they were they believed everything was the will of god everything that happened um that sooner or later they'd be coming back still to come on the history extra podcast these did seem to me some of these puritans with their smashing of um of you know imagery their suppression of music uh, they did seem to me like a kind of Protestant Taliban, and I found them. I found that very um, off-putting. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. And what was their reception like in New England? To begin with, they were welcomed. They were the most senior uh, Englishmen ever to visit uh, America. I mean, bear in mind, uh, Wally, as Cromwell's cousin, had commanded the cavalry and uh, had essentially been in charge of Cromwell's personal security when he was Lord Protector. And uh, Gough had commanded Cromwell's regiment of foot, and they'd both been part of the regime in, in this capacity as the, when it was the rule of the major general. So they were big figures, and they were they were greeted as uh, honoured guests for the first few months. And then the warrant for their arrest caught up with them. And elements of the government in Massachusetts, because they went to live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the shadow of Harvard College, uh, they realised that uh, this would be the end of the colony if they were caught harbouring these people. And so then they had to flee, and they fled to uh, New Haven, which was extreme even by Puritan standards. And they didn't really recognise the rule of the king. They only recognised um, the rule of God. And there they found open shelter again until eventually it became too hot there. And then they went on the run again. And so they moved endlessly across uh, New England, hiding uh, in barns, in cellars, in attics, and for a time, several periods, actually out in the open, in caves, uh, in the woods. I mean, and this went on for many years. And I'm sure some of our listeners might think that hiding in the new world would be quite a simple prospect, considering how large it is. But how easy was it in reality? Well, it looks large. I mean, it is large. But there are only very limited areas where the towns, and, and town is a misnomer, really, small hamlets uh, had been settled. So if strangers arrive, they're very conspicuous. Therefore, it, I have my hero, uh, not hero, but my my antagonist, as it were, um, Naylor, hunting them, reflect that they might have done better to stay in London, where there were 400,000 inhabitants, than flee to New England, where there were only about 30,000 inhabitants. And really, wherever you went in these isolated settlements, you were likely to be conspicuous. So it was remarkable that they managed to stay one step ahead of the of their pursuers for so long because they were seriously hunted down and a reward was offered for them of a hundred pounds a head, which was a fortune in those days. 
And you've touched on this in your previous answer, but what risks would there be for someone who is found to be harbouring a fugitive? Well, anyone found harbouring them was guilty of treason, high treason. So technically, they too would be liable to be hanged, drawn and quartered. It was uh, extremely dangerous. And those people who did shelter them were very uh, brave to do it. Uh, It was uh, a a pretty hideous life, I would have imagined, for them on the run, away from their families, constantly frightened of betrayal. And I think that some of the regicides who were hand-drawn and quartered thought it was better to do that, that to, to go and meet God quickly and pay the penalty of pain and death than to do have this long, protracted, drawn-out exile, which is the great, the ancient in the ancient world to be exiled was a considered a worse punishment even than death. Mm. And changing tack slightly, I wanted to ask you about the Native Americans who appear throughout your narrative. What part did they play in the actual history of the regicides? The most famous episode, which is just uh, a gift for a novelist, is the so-called incident of the Angel of Hadley, uh, which is a real-life episode, Historians still dispute it, but um, there was an Indian war in um, the 1670s. And by this time, we know that Wally and Goff had moved to a tiny settlement high up the Connecticut River, almost the furthest point you could get in, in the British Empire, as it were. Uh, and that when the war began, this is a settlement of only 50 or 60 houses or something like that, it was impossible, it would have been impossible for a trained soldier like uh, Goff to have sat quietly in the attic when the town came under attack. And it appears, certainly the legend was, that an old man suddenly appeared that nobody had seen before uh, in the church and organised the defence of the town. And there is enough evidence from the time to suggest that this did happen and that it was covered up. There was a hasty attempt to excise this episode from the history of the war and that uh, further evidence is that Goff had to flee from Hadley to a new hiding place. So this is uh, a remarkable story. Walter Scott used it in a novel, the idea of of the hidden figure coming back Bear in mind he'd been the commander of a regiment, was probably the supreme fighting regiment in the English army. It's perfectly plausible that he would have organised the defence of the town and saved the town. So that was a great episode to put in the novel, which I greatly enjoyed writing. And for those who saw exile in Europe rather than the New World, how did that compare? If you got to, uh, say, Switzerland, um, like uh, Ludlow did, Uh, you were fairly well protected by the local Calvinist community. This didn't stop the regicide hunters going after them. John Lyle, who didn't actually sign the death warrant or even act as judge, but was in charge of kind of the legal proceedings, sitting next to Bradshaw, the president of the court, he was gunned down on his way into church by an assassination squad. The same squad attempted to kidnap uh, Ludlow, and uh, three of the regicides were lured to a meeting in um, Delft in Holland, uh, and they were captured and were taken back and executed. It was there was no point at which the, the hunt ever let up. It was a little like uh, Mossad agents going after uh, war criminals or after the 
terrorists at uh, the Munich Olympics in 1972. You know, uh, they were marked men and they were relentlessly pursued. And did the restoration government ever tire of hunting down the regicides or did they continue to focus on it with full force? Obviously, the actual, the the red hot nature of the chase did diminish. And also they were worried that after so many men had been hanged, drawn and quartered, that it was becoming a distasteful spectacle and they were turning these men into martyrs. Still, Ludlow tried to come back many years after the death of Charles II and uh, returned to London and was advised very quickly to get out again, and he did. There was no way back. Those who were sentenced to life imprisonment were never let out of, of prison. They were held in pre- often pretty terrible conditions. And they all died in captivity, as far as I know, pretty well all. And those who were imprisoned in London on the 30th of January each year on the anniversary of the king's death were dragged through the streets of London and made to stand with a noose around their neck at Tyburn with blood smeared on their faces uh, to be jeered and taunted by the crowd. So it was considered such a heinous act to have killed a king that it deserved the most heinous punishment that could be devised. So the jeopardy of my two characters on the run is very real. You know, they would have been taken back in chains and hanged, drawn and quartered. And although Richard Naylor, the manhunter, is fictional, some of the techniques that he uses to try and draw out the regicides really intrigued me. Can you tell us a bit about how they would try and lure them out of hiding? Well, the the most famous case was in um, Holland. A real villain of the piece, perhaps the biggest villain of the time, was, a man, was Sir George Downing, who had been born or brought up in New England and was one of the first students at Harvard College, which was designed to turn out Puritan preachers. When the Civil War broke out, he went to England and was taken up by John Oakey, who was a colonel in the New Model Army, and became chaplain of his regiment and lived in Oakey's household. Uh, Cromwell took a shine to Downing and he he ended up as ambassador uh, in The Hague, And after Cromwell's death, he saw the way things were going and he started passing on information and made contact with Charles, the exiled claimant to the throne. And lo and behold, he was appointed ambassador again at The Hague. But his old colleagues, including Oakey, trusted him. And so uh, he got a a man to pretend to be in touch with the wives of three of the um, regicides in exile and, and suggest that they met in the security of his house, and Downing offered them passes of safe conduct across uh, Holland. Uh, Of course, he lied, and they were picked up. Uh, Into this true story, I insert my regicide hunter. So uh, he is involved in all that. You know, they, they surveyed all the mail, they intercepted the mail, they broke the ciphers which were used by the regicides to communicate with one another, Uh, They scoured the passenger lists for people going and coming for New England. They staged raids. They uh, arranged for a a hunting party to pursue the the Wally and Gough across New England. We know that that um, was facilitated by someone who was sent out from London, and so I made Naylor that man. I mean, there is this somewhere in the record, there is this figure that did all this, and I've just given him a character and a name. 
I'm thinking about your personal position. Would you consider yourself more of a royalist or a roundhead? Well, I've always absolutely thought I'd be a roundhead. I, I, you know, I believe in parliamentary power uh, and not the power of a monarch. But the more I got into this, although I liked Wally and Goff, and I humanised them, and Carlyle, I must be one of the few people who've in recent times, he's read Carlyle's life of Oliver Cromwell, said that they were a race of giants. This was the great race of giants on the earth in English history, that these men of serious purpose cut off the king's head, established a republic, that it was a, a, a wonderful thing to do. Nevertheless, I dislike the religious intolerance. I think that for us who've seen it um, come back to the fore, you know, with terrorism, these did seem to me some of these Puritans with their smashing of, um, of you know, imagery, their suppression of music, uh, they did seem to me like a kind of Protestant Taliban. And I found, them, I found that very uh, off-putting. And I, I realised that at heart I am probably a cavalier after all. You know, I'm glad that they did what they did to the extent that it created an English constitutional monarchy and system, which is seen as pretty well through all the turbulence of the past few centuries but i would uh, i would reckon that i would have been a parliamentary moderate and as such would have been crushed as so many moderates are in revolutionary times <laughs> and who was your favorite character to write i enjoyed writing richard naylor a lot because although he's quite a dark figure he has a lot of energy He's pr really pretty well an atheist, actually. However, few people would have been atheists at that time. They would have pretended, at least, to, to be believers. But he is a bitter and twisted man, but quite modern and full of energy and bile. But I quite liked him, actually. I've, and I did enjoy putting his characters in the novel, both Charles I and Oliver Cromwell, men not dissimilar, actually, in their absolute certainty that God was on their side and was guiding their actions. And they were, they were mirror images of one another. And one of the remarkable things that I realised as I started researching the book was that Edward Wally, Cromwell's cousin, actually was the king's jailer, effectively, for about eight or nine months during the Civil War. It was on his watch that uh, Charles I escaped from Hampton Court. So I could really bring these two men into the into the story um, by the simple device and not incidentally implausible that Edward Wally in all this time of empty time that he had in America might have started to write some kind of memoir and so I can bring these two figures in and that was very enjoyable writing about Cromwell what an extraordinary figure he was and I'm able to put in the, the famous scene uh, when he closes down Parliament and as the narrative progresses, how do Wally and Goff's attitudes towards what they've done shift? Because of what we know about Wally, because of his essential uh, moderation, I think that he would have begun to question what had happened. They surged forwards with tremendous confidence, um, the army, the New Model Army uh, and Cromwell, because they believed that their victories had flown from God, that they were, doing, they were God's instruments in the famous phrase. 
and that and they, as they carried all before them, beat the king's army, took control of the country, and so on, they must have believed that it, they were doing God's work. Well, if you believe that when things are going well, what do you think when things are going badly? As the years drag by and it becomes obvious that Charles II is not going to fall from power, I think you would, a lot of us would begin to question our previous beliefs. And so I have Wally start to, to do that. Goff, uh, on the other hand, true to form, simply is simply hanging on for 1666 and the inevitable return to earth as foretold in the book of Revelation of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom on earth, which is what the people in New Haven firmly believed. In fact, they believed that the Christ was going to come to their very town. <laughs> and this would be where the new... Uh, Jerusalem would begin. So, you know, there's friction between the two men because they take very, very different views of their predicament. Mm. And what events that happened before 1666 would give strength to Goff's view? There was quite a lot happened, as you know, around 1665 and 1666. There was a disastrous war with the Dutch, um, where we kept losing ships and, and battles. There was the sinking of the a part of the English fleet in the River Thames. There was the plague, which may have wiped out a quarter of London's population, followed the following year by the Great Fire of London. And these all, these massive uh, cataclysms, seem to mirror the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So it must have seemed at that time to those who, who believed in that doctrine and comets were cited and all sorts of things like that, that, that it was indeed coming true. And one of the difficulties with writing about this period is, is the fact that religion is real, God is real. It's not some sort of thing you can buy into if you fancy it or not, or we live in a completely secular society. They lived in a profoundly religious society that explained all the horrible things that were always going on. Uh, so, uh, you know, there was there was plenty of things that they could chew on that made them think in 1666 that their hour had come again. That was Robert Harris. His newest novel, Act of Oblivion, is published by Penguin and on sale now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. 